Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa, the podcast. I'm delighted this week to be joined by Dr. Franny Lottier. She's someone who I've been longing to meet for a very long while now. She's an African finance and development expert. She has served at the African Development Bank, the World Bank Group, the African Capacity Building Foundation. She's served in very senior roles in, in each of those organizations. More recently, she was in the commercial sector at Trade and Development Bank, TDB, and she is a prolific writer, author, academic. She teaches, I think I'm right in saying, or has taught graduate level courses at Sciences Po in Paris, at MIT, where she herself graduated, Harvard, Duke, University of Tokyo. She has a PhD in infrastructure systems from MIT, and she holds I know at least one honorary doctorate, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's a couple more than that. She also serves on the board of a number of international and regional organizations, including the World Economic Forum, the UN Foundation, OCP Group uh, from Morocco, African Risk Capacity, and the African Economic Research Consortium, amongst others. And for the most part, she is occupied today in her current executive role at Southbridge Group where she is the CEO of Southbridge Investments, the group's asset management subsidiary. Franny, what an accomplished career you've had, and you're still very much in the thick of it and very active at Southbridge. Tell us a little bit more, if you will, about what you're doing at Southbridge now. I know it's a relatively recently launched organization with some very esteemed colleagues that have been assembled, I know, Tell us more about your mission there and specifically what you're doing. Well, thank you very much, Marcus, for inviting me to your very well listened to podcast. It's been a great pleasure to hear some of the interviews and to be able to learn from your guests and from yourself. I joined Southbridge actually from its very birth. I was more on the governance side of things. I used to chair their audit and risk committee. And the firm was created by Donald Kaberuka, who had two terms as president of the African Development Bank. And the second founding partner is Lionel Zansu, who spent uh, over 20 years working in private equity with uh, Rothschild and with PAI, which is one of the largest private equity firms in France. But he was also prime minister of Benin. So the two of them founded Southridge Group with the intent of bridging demands for capital in Africa with the availability of capital globally. So when they set up the firm, they started with the advisory side of the business. So it's an investment bank, and they started with the advisory side of the business, and they attracted people uh, from very experienced track records to come and join. So you have uh, Andrew Ali, who was the president of the Africa Finance Corporation, who has joined as group CEO. And then you have other partners uh, who have come from Goldman Sachs and from the business world who have joined the firm. And so I joined them on the executive side 
in July last year and uh, took over the leadership of uh, Southbridge Investments, which is the new arm to now balance out the advisory business with the investment business. So I've been there now for about nine months uh, on the executive side and I'm focusing really on building the investment arm of the group. And Franny, what will you be investing in? So when I came on board and we had our conversations at the partnership level, we looked around Africa and we found that there is this big gap in the market for finance that isn't really being properly filled by any of the existing players. So we decided to take a slice across that gap that remains. And primarily, we wanted to intervene through the financial institutions to start, but to focus on small and medium enterprises that really are the workhorse of Africa, and they're having a very challenging time finding the kind of financing they need to grow. So our interventions, uh, the first one is with financial institutions. So these are banks, insurance companies, and the micro-meso finance areas, where we uh, invest in buying up small banks, transforming them, bringing in fintech solutions, creating SME lending platforms, and helping them to create innovative solutions that extend financing to those who would otherwise not have it. Our second intervention is to focus on unique solutions for SMEs in the equipment purchasing space. And then the third is more around bridging the gap for finance for women entrepreneurs. So those are the three areas that we've selected to start with, which is really stretching impact investing to reach markets that would otherwise not get there. Sounds wonderful. I'm suspecting that there's a technology common thread running through these investments, that you're using technology to disrupt old traditional markets and to provide a more efficient service to small and medium-sized enterprises in, in target segments. Absolutely. In fact, uh, technology really is the common thread amongst all our activities. We believe that the disruptive element of it is fundamental because when you look at reasons why finance has not reached some of these unserved markets, it's either because it's very costly to do so in the traditional methods or it is very labor intensive and therefore takes long human hours to do it, or it has some implications in the speed at which decisions are made. So when you use technology, you are able to actually break those three barriers and reach a market that otherwise would be very difficult to reach. So technology runs through all of the solutions that we are bringing to the market. Great. I'm recalling Bob Diamond, and uh, a few years ago, he raised a lot of money to acquire a BC bank and build a pan-African institution with technology as a key enabler, as he saw it, for that business. I think shareholders were disappointed. Do you feel the legacy of that big play of a few years ago in your current approach to the market as you approach the investment community? In fact, we took a lot of lessons from Bob Diamond and, and the efforts that he brought to the market. One of the good things about working with tech is the fail-fast solutions, because by failing fast, you actually learn. I trained as an engineer, and engineers don't succeed at the first go. 
but you are trained to learn from your failures and you keep experimenting and fixing until you get it right. And I think the approach that we have taken is to, first of all, look and see what others have tried and why they didn't succeed. And based on that, to pick on those lessons and to start small, to start very humble and then grow because organic growth is much easier. You can always add new elements. And so we are starting at a very humble level, small ticket sizes, small fund sizes, having permanent capital structures in some instances so that you are not having the pressure of exit in a short period of time. At the moment, working with private capital rather than going to the markets because the pressures from the market are quite different and they may take you in a direction that doesn't necessarily solve the problem in the short run, but to leave market solutions for the future and therefore grow organically in a way that allows the the solutions to actually drive the pace of growth. Thank you for that, Franny. I'm assuming that there's no shortage of capital, that you're not having any difficulties in in raising the sort of finance from impact investment funds. From everything that I read, there's a lot of money that's being allocated for impact investment, particularly in, in emerging and frontier markets. Is that the case? Is that what you're experiencing? There is a lot of money, but it's not that easy to get. So you have to have a very credible market story, why your solution is going to work in which markets you are targeting. There is a lot of focus on the execution methodology and the track record. So even if you've done amazing things in your previous life, you still have to prove that you can do new things with a different team in a different place. And I think that makes it challenging to to raise funding in any situation. But I must say that uh, we have been very encouraged uh, when you look particularly at Africa during the COVID and we hope the post-COVID phase has been able to attract financing in areas where it would have been very difficult to imagine in the past. And I think this is why innovation really matters and the way in which you can talk about the approach that you are taking, the credibility of the team you are bringing together and your ability to link the past track record that your team and yourself have to the solution that you're proposing. When you're able to bridge those, then investment becomes quite straightforward and people are willing to take a risk on you. Wonderful. Well, Franny, you've brought us on to a subject that I want to talk to you about, and that's innovation. Last year, we ourselves, in collaboration with the World Economic Forum's Africa Leadership and Values Initiative, launched a platform called Stories Africa. You can visit it at storiesafrica.org. And there we're trying to profile examples of innovation and leadership from across the African continent. People who are interested in going and view the platform themselves. But one of the things that we've been featuring is entrepreneurs, Africans who are disrupting markets with new technologies and new business models. And it's given me a better insight than I had previously, certainly, into the amount of innovation that is happening on the continent. I get the sense that COVID has accelerated this innovation or certainly shone a lens or a light rather on these innovators. And all of us have become just that much more aware of how many young Africans are disrupting, not just in fintech, which is quite well established now, but in medical devices as well, in education, in e-education 
and in other fields. Are these some of the things that you're observing as you look to provide growth capital to African entrepreneurs and SMEs? Marcus, you've raised a really fundamental issue. And I think this is something that even growing up as a child, uh, I, I was very observant on because when you are living in an environment of scarcity in terms of material resources to make things, but you're surrounded with nature and other materials that are existing right next to you, you become very innovative in creating your own space. So you're creating your own toys and and you learn and grow up in that environment. And what I have been very struck about traveling around Africa and particularly learning in these few days that we haven't been able to travel, but being able to interact with people through social media, through video conferencing and other remote communication solutions is how frugal innovation has really taken root because people are looking at all kinds of ways to solve problems, but in the complexity and within the environmental challenges that they are facing. And I think frugal innovation has an advantage that once you succeed with your innovation, scaling becomes quite straightforward. It's much harder to go from big to small. And there are many pathways from small to big. And this is why I believe African innovations, when they crack the market, they do it in a big way. Because the small innovations can be scaled up in many different paths because they were born out of frugality and therefore there's no excess. And usually in, in innovation, it is quite costly to put innovations together. And so if you are able to do it in a manner that is economic and efficient, even if it takes time and you've tinkered around and come up with a solution that works nine times out of 10, scaling it up from there becomes quite straightforward because you can scale it six or seven different ways. And this is something that is quite amazing. The young man, in a 12-year-old boy in Kenya who figured out a way to create a tap, a water tap, where people can wash their hands without touching the, the tap, is an example. He learned from school that you shouldn't touch surfaces because you could get infected from coronavirus. And he just figured out a way to do it with the feet. And so this is something that a young person can think about and make. And that really is, is the, the heart of innovation, thinking about solutions and tinkering around until you find a way to solve the problem. And I, I'm very excited about the different kinds of innovations, small and big that have been born out of the COVID crisis. And uh, the place where you collect them with the stories that you bring together are really quite amazing because very few people would have come across those stories. And I'm very happy that uh, Levi has taken that initiative to focus on bringing those African stories to the world. Thank you, Franny. Thank you for your help with that initiative. I know that you've been involved and certainly encouraged us to take that initiative. So so thank you. I love frugal innovation. It's the first time I've heard it. Is it a common term or is it something that you've introduced or you and your colleagues have brought into the vernacular? It's a term that's been around. It has been not usually used in the context of what we're trying to do in, in various sectors across the world. But it's something that has been very, very common, for example, in India, 
where people have been very innovative with very limited resources. And uh, there's a partnership between France and India to uncover frugal innovation. And when I heard about it, I said, but the heart of frugal innovation is Africa. And maybe this is a place where we can go and, uh, and uncover some of these amazing uh, innovations that nobody has heard about. So we were bantering about it in various uh, sessions at colleagues like uh, Paul Okumu and others at Levi. And uh, we were very happy when I heard that you and colleagues were really excited about taking those stories across the world to say that this is an example where frugality can actually be a virtue in innovation, and especially because limited resources are the future. When you look at where we are headed as humanity with all the challenges we have with climate change, being able to innovate where you are with what you have is going to be the norm. And so in many ways, Africa is leading the way in that space. Well, thank you, Franny. And you brought us on to a subject that I wanted to touch on with you, climate change, climate finance. There's a lot on the international agenda this year, culminating in the Conference of Parties in Glasgow at the end of the year. But I was really pleasantly surprised about the number of international events, multilateral fora, dedicated to climate change and to biodiversity and conservation. I'm optimistic that the end of 2021, the context in which we're, we're talking today will have changed and climate finance will be much more understood and the opportunities that are availed for African countries in particular, but emerging countries perhaps more generally, will become much more apparent. And hopefully the transition to, to green growth and to renewable technologies and to making use of our vast expanses of land and unique biodiversity and forests and, and to maintaining them will, will have a commercial value that African leaders, African countries will see value in focusing energies and attention on. I wonder what your own views and expectations are for this year, 2021, when it comes to humanity's efforts to get to net zero by 2050 and to stop the pace of global warming. And practically, from the perspective of someone who spent a career in finance and international development, what's your hope in terms of African nations' ability to access pools of funding to pursue green growth and the transition away from, from fossil fuels? I think this is really another area where, Marcus, you, you have focused on something that is very critical and where Africa has an opportunity to lead and also to follow from others' examples and scale up. I'm very impressed, for example, by what you can do at the city level. We had this big event on the Climate Action Summit where all the mayors of the world got together and were sharing ideas on how they're tackling a variety of climate-related challenges and how they are coping, but some of them how they are thriving and innovating. And I think the, the better we are able to solve the problems in the cities, given that Africa is urbanizing at a very fast pace, the better we are in solving the climate problem overall. And uh, when you look at the majority of issues that we are grappling with, they have to do, for example, with flooding. We've had recent incidents of flooding in a number of cities, whether it's Kigali, where you have whole slopes of earth uh, falling after heavy rains, 
or the coast of Dar es Salaam where people are drowned every year around Christmas because of, of the high level of the sea or what happened to Mozambique and the entire Indian Ocean coast because of the surge and the storms that have impacted the city. So flooding is one of the big areas that cities are grappling with. And then, of course, in the Sahelian cities, it's the opposite problem of droughts and how to find clean water to the city residents and a challenge for many cities. But what is really impressive when I look at how mayors have come about working with young people and innovators to solve the problems is to actually tackle the challenge in a way that others have not imagined before. You see a small team of researchers using physics in a very unique way and chemistry to actually create water because they know water is hydrogen and oxygen, and you figure out how to create it. And, and it's called magic, which uh, magi is the word for water in many Bantu uh, original languages. And so magic, which is magic, to magically make water, makes a very nice word because it combines the term of water and the term of magic or creation or, 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 or bringing things to life. And I think these are some examples where people can start from the basic principles and create something new, but at the same time, they can work with traditional things like cleaning up the rivers so that you have fresh water sources protected, doing better waste collection so that you don't find garbage finding its way in the seas and, and in the big rivers, using waste to generate energy so that you solve two problems at once, circular economy solutions that are quite innovative, that make things out of things that we would throw away otherwise, bioengineering to go on the higher scale of innovation. So it's endless, the list of things that people have been able to come up with. But it makes me very, very happy to see that that's not limited just to cities. And particularly now with the limitation of travel and the real challenges countries are facing that are dependent on nature tourism, and how they've been able to innovate and produce these incredible tourist experiences for people without having them leave their homes through using technology so you can actually go inches close to a gorilla or be able to see a rhino in its natural habitat as close as you can get or bringing to you the thundering of animals as they migrate when you're actually able to even feel the dust in your nose. I mean, those kind of technological solutions that allow us to bring tourism to somebody's living room in a way to generate income for the countries dependent on it, but at the same time, preserve the natural habitat and disturb it less because tourists are able to experience without actually going there and having some negative implications on the habitat. I saw, for instance, the procedures taken to protect gorillas from coronavirus because the tourists could bring coronavirus to them. So how do you do it in a way that they, they can stay safe and, and yet have an experience where you are able to interact with them in a very unusual, close manner? So I think technology is helping us find those solutions during a time of crisis that solves urban problems and also solves 
ability for us to interact with nature when we are not able to go there physically. And my hope is that we use these techniques to save carbon so that we are not flying around all the time to go and see unique things. And at the same time, to learn and observe and contribute to the protection of these amazing habitats that we have on the continent. And at the same time, innovate and push the frontier and become first to the technology nose in terms of innovation on the urban side, where we keep Africa living in multiple eras. And I think we are the unique continent that can do this. And we have a chance to do this. And I hope we can take it and, and move forward with all these opportunities. What a lovely outlook, marrying the old with the new, progressive, young, innovative generation with some of the legacy cultural and natural and, and man-made that we have on the continent. A lovely vision. I wanted to turn now to trade, Franny. The beginning of the year, January the 1st, marked the inauguration of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. You've spent a lot of your career, or a portion of your career, let me say, at a dedicated trade finance institution, TDB, I think I'm correct in saying that, a bank that was established um, to facilitate trade in Eastern and Southern Africa. The institution was very successful during the period that you were there, growing from a relatively small capital base, something in the order of $6 billion, I think. You financed a lot of cross-border transactions, some of them sophisticated, but also focused on SMEs, I know, and a lot of them intra-African. We know that the proportion of trade that Africa does with itself is significantly smaller than the quantum of trade that African nations do with the rest of the world. That presents a problem in as much as we're leaving value on the table within African nations and we're not keeping those value chains within the continent where those opportunities should perhaps exist. Tell us a little bit more, if I can ask you to, about your experience in promoting and supporting trade specifically on the continent and what your hopes and aspirations are for this continental free trade agreement. There's a lot of excitement in certain quarters, but also some cynicism in others, recognizing that there are still a number of countries still to ratify the agreement and and a belief that we have still a crop of relatively older political leaders who are motivated by political and, dare I say, sort of nationalist priorities and perhaps won't be as ready to embrace the integration agenda and that the Continental Free Trade Agreement necessarily involves. What are your views there? Could you talk to us about trade and, and your observations and aspirations? First of all, I'd like to say that what we have accomplished in Africa with uh, having the first day of trading happening in the middle of COVID and taking place as planned with no delays is an amazing achievement because the continent and its leadership have been so focused in saying we get a subgroup of countries to ratify and we move and the others are going to catch up and we'll move along with those who are able to start now and get things going. And I think that can-do attitude that says we know our bigger dream, we know it's difficult to achieve, let's start with a few who can start and then the rest will come along. And I think that political choice was a very smart choice to make because it allowed the continental free trade area to get 
going on day one on the planned date with ratification by a subgroup that was able to move. And then the other countries will come along as their political processes sort out at the national level. And I believe that uh, the success of the continental free trade area will be driven by individuals and by companies because they see the opportunity and they take it. So what has been easy to do? Easy to do is to fire up the imagination of the youth because the youth see Africa as a possibility and they are less encumbered by historical and other factors that hold them back and therefore they are ready to charge and move. And you can see them doing it on the cultural side because I think that's it's very important. You mentioned it earlier. When you look, for instance, at the consumption of the creative arts, the movies made in different countries make their way all over. You're in Nigeria watching a movie from Uganda. Nigerian movies are all over the world right now. South African theatrical pieces can be seen even in DRC, in Kinshasa. You can watch a piece of theater from South Africa. So I think the cultural wave has really moved and people are consuming and creating and sharing the cultural space in an amazing way, to the extent that we even have jollof rice wars with people saying our recipe is better than yours. So we really are the originators of jollof rice. But today, jollof rice is an African dish you eat in almost any major African restaurant on the continent. And so people are starting to feel that commonality. And I think that is really the space in which integration of trade takes place because you're trading food and agri-products, agribusiness. You are creating pathways by which cultural products are moving on, on telecommunication systems, movie networks, and so on. So I think that is very, very exciting. The second space is for infrastructure to connect the countries. I think that is really important because previously all the countries were thinking of sending their products out. So the infrastructure has been generated to move towards the ports. And then the landlocked countries are forced to connect with those that have access to the ports. But now with the continental free trade area, trade is looking inside. And therefore, landlocked countries have a chance because they can trade with their neighbors and they don't necessarily need access to the sea. But that requires investments in infrastructure. Very exciting solutions have already come into place. I was at the African Development Bank when Tanzania completed the last 200 kilometers of a road that connects Africa from north to south. You could drive now all across Africa from the north to the south because that last segment of 200 kilometers was in place. And similarly, connecting Dakar to Djibouti on the western side, where again, you have that infrastructure in place. When I was a little child, I think this is something I tell my kids. My father, he used to love cars. It was always tinkering and fixing and trying to raise the performance of his very old Ford Cortina. And that one year, the East African Safari Rally was passing by our side of the world. And we were just going on, all of us, seven, you can imagine with seven kids in the car, in a tiny car. We we're all cramped in there. And we were driving on a Sunday, uh, going to just visit 
because my parents used to take us to see different places when they could. And just as we were leaving our home, the first vehicle of the safari rally passed by. And my dad told us to all lean very low in the car, ask my mom to put on her headscarf and sunglasses, and we joined the safari rally and we raced with them for a short space of time. And during those three moments, experiencing the road at speed without seeing where you're going was such a thrill. I still have it in my bloodstream to this day because whenever I want to take something very risky, I close my eyes and imagine that moment where you know where you're going, but you can't quite see and you feel the bumps in the road. And I think for us, building that infrastructure that connects the countries, knowing where we want to go, knowing there are going to be bumps on the road because it's costly, we may have border disputes, we may have challenges in finalizing it on time, but we will get there because we decided to join that race. And that race is going to help us get there. So we have to put in the roads. We have to put in the electricity that interconnects us amongst countries. Very soon now, you will be able to trade electricity from Mozambique to Ethiopia, right? We are putting Mm -hmm. that investment in place. And I think that will open up even more opportunities. And then there is the cross-border country to country, which previously was happening already. If you would see, for example, how did textiles from Senegal make their way to Cameroon. They went basically by women carrying them on their backs and crossing the borders from one country to the next all the way until they got to Cameroon and into northern Nigeria and so on. So there was already trade happening. It was very dangerous with women going through extreme difficulty to trade in those areas. But now we can actually support that by secure borders where trade can flow with agreements between countries where you can have the logistic supply chain come in place with with technological monitoring where you know exactly where the vehicles are, when a package has been picked up and when it has been delivered. We have all that possibility now and therefore trade should be quite straightforward. And then the last area is really the non-tariff barriers that we need to remove because those are creating a lot of friction in trade. And if we can get those removed, we will be in a very good space. And I think uh, one example is, is the payment system. If I can buy something in Tanzanian shillings and pay for it in a market that asks for rand and they don't ask me for rand, I'm great because the exchange rate can be handled now through technological algorithms that get the market rate and they can give you a rate instantaneously. And therefore, I should be able to buy something without having to go through the central bank and or even need a credit card. Because if I'm connected to you by telephone and there is an accepted market for currency transaction or brokering, then you and I can trade. So I think as we go removing these barriers on payment systems, on currency conversion, on ability to move goods from one place to the other, getting to common standards, certification, etc., those soft issues are going to take us to the last leg. Franny, it's such a delight to hear your positive outlook and for you to share these insights that you have around you know, the real extent of innovation and enterprise that you're observing in the private 
section in particular. Thank you for those. My last question to you, if I may, I wanted to touch on, on gender equality. Your story is, is an inspiring one. You grew up, you were just mentioning, one of seven children in rural Tanzania, and you made it to MIT in the States. And by sheer force of will, a lot of hard work, and I think, I think I'm correct in saying that it was not an easy journey to get over to the US, but you were determined. And you did it really against all odds, because not only were you, a, you know, a young girl from rural Tanzania, but you were, I think I read somewhere, in fact, that you were, you were the only woman in your lecture hall of the 70 or so students at Dar es Salaam University studying engineering. You were the only lady. And then you moved into an engineering job, engineering sector. Well, it's an industry that's not known for having a high number of women. I wonder, based on where you've come from and your own experience and what you've observed over the course of of your career and lifetime, traveling all over Africa, are you pleasantly surprised by the progress that's been made in in addressing gender equality, particularly uh, over the last five years, where I think there really have been some breakthroughs and some victories? Or are you disappointed? Do you feel that insufficient has been done and each day you feel the onus to play your part and do what you can to to promote opportunities for other women, given your stature now? Um, I'm not sure I've presented that question very well, but I'd love to get your insights into gender equality and the experience of women on the continent. It's unfair to talk of so many countries, but in this week in which we celebrated International Women's Day, I'd love to get to your perspective. Marcus, that's a, that's a really, really important subject, especially given the International Women's Month. And I must say I'm an optimist by nature. It's the only way that you can wake up and get things done, especially if you're in a very challenging environment or you're facing a very complex problem. So for me, I had to be optimistic from the day I was born because there's no other way to survive if you have, if you have so much adversity and challenge hitting you, you learn to survive. I mean, I was born very, very fragile and uh, I almost died multiple times in the first nine months of my life. And my mom tells me that that's probably where I get my fighting spirit from because each time they thought that was it, it wasn't it. I was breathing the next day and, <laughs> and, and ready to go. So I think I'm quite happy, by the way, with the ex- achievements that we have made. And let me start from a very personal view. When I went to the University of Dar es Salaam to study engineering, it's true, 60 men and, my, and me in a class. But today, the majority of the students in that very same school of engineering are female. Right. So in the space of my in my lifetime hasn't ended, but in the space of my living time, I have seen that transformation take place. And this is just one country. So you can imagine that there are many other evolutions that have taken place that are very positive for women. But I can speak on engineering because I've observed it with my own eyes. The other thing that uh, is really uh, impressive is today. Africa has the largest share of women in parliament in the world, not just in Africa, in the world. We have made huge achievements in getting women in the political sphere to make decisions actually in parliament, which are the types of decisions that shape the law 
and shape the future. So they're really even more important than, for example, at the presidential level or other levels of political leadership. The third thing which is really impressive, I was looking at this report done by McKinsey that again showed that in corporate boards, Africa leads the world. One in every four board members in Africa is a woman. Now, of course, there are some challenges still there because most of the women who are in these corporate boards, given nurturing roles like human resources or law and legal issues, and are not many of them in the core part of the business. But I think this is a matter of time because the rest of the world hasn't even gotten there where where Africa is. So those are the positives and things are moving very well in that regard. Where things are still challenging are at the level of education, where access to education still remains a major, major challenge for many young women across Africa because they still are married too young in some countries. They still have activities that they have to do to support the family because there is no water, there is no electricity, and somebody has to fetch the water and fetch the wood. And usually that means the young girls. So that takes away from studying and learning and and developing themselves. Way too many young women are having babies when they're still babies. And that is a problem for their future development and education. And in some countries, it's very harsh because of families where when you get pregnant, you drop out of school, you drop out of any chance to develop yourself. So these young women get penalized multiple times. That has to still be a focus area for all of us. The second area I think is in finance. I was very surprised and shocked. I I mean, I sensed it, but it was shocking to see it in an independent evaluation with controls that was done by the IFC and the World Bank, looking at this issue of access to finance for women, why is it so hard? And they found a number of reasons, but one of them, which is the more difficult one to handle, is what they termed investor bias. That's a good idea that comes being pitched by a group of men, same idea, same qualifications, same track record, by a group of women, and the idea would be turned down. And so there's this pure bias, which is towards women, and thinking them or having women be thought of being more risky to invest in, to have market ideas that are not that easy to execute, etc. So I think here is a place where we still have a lot of work to do. It has to do with education in general on assessing risk, so that investor teams feel comfortable with a pitch that is being done by a woman because they look at what matters in execution rather than thinking through all the biases that one may grow up with around how women execute or, or make business decisions. I think it has a lot also to in terms of providing opportunities where equity investments can be made available to women, supporting them at early stages of the ideas through venture capital and other forms, accelerators and helping women think through their solutions. But what was also interesting in these World Bank IFC evaluations is that the most important form of training for women to succeed as entrepreneurs was psychological. And to me, that was really telling. 
that if you believe in yourself, you're confident and you know and can shape where you are going, you are able to succeed because psychology helps you interpret Mm -hmm. not only yourself, but the behavior of others. And, uh, and to me, this was really very, very telling. So I think I'd like to end with that, saying that we've made a lot of progress. It is very impressive. It's globally impressive. But there are these hard bottlenecks that we still face in education, in the attitude towards women in business and in finance, and in supporting some of the last mile challenges that women are facing. But confidence, to me, seems to be the driver. And these studies show that. Really interesting. Clearly a subject very dear to you and and close to your heart and one lived by you. I couldn't agree more. I think we need more, well, one of my own views, we need more examples of inspiring women who are leading in their fields so that we can give confidence to women that they too can, can achieve great things. I'm always slightly surprised when in circumstances where there are two people on a ballot, a man and a woman, still to this day, women are inclined to vote for the man just because of that bias that you referenced. You referenced it from an investor standpoint, but I think it stands generally with regards to leadership. So I feel I'm doing my job in uh, helping to amplify the voices of great female leaders like yourself who really are an inspiration. And I hope in providing that platform, as we're trying to do, as you mentioned, through, through Stories Africa as well, we can encourage more people to have the confidence that you just referenced and to lead in their own right. Franny, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for devoting so much time to this conversation this morning. I wish you well at Southbridge. I have no doubt that that group is going to go from strength to strength. And as you approach your investments in the way that you outlined, backing frugal innovation, I have every expectation that and continue to be a vital catalyst in spurring innovation and supporting entrepreneurs and helping African companies to grow. So thanks, Franny, for for sharing those insights with us. And thank you very much, Marcus. Uh, It's been an honor to be part of your program. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, I wish you all the best with the stories that you're bringing on innovation, but also with the podcasts and the ideas that you bring to the rest of the world. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to engage with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.